What's up, hardcore humans? This is Dr. Mike with another episode of the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. Today, we are talking with mental health advocate Lily Cornell Silver, the founder and host of the podcast and video interview series, Mind Wide Open. Lily is the daughter of the late Chris Cornell of Soundgarden, Temple of the Dog and Audio Slave, and music industry manager Susan Silver. And on her Mind Wide Open podcast, she's tackling the difficult topic of how we understand, cope with, and destigmatize mental illness. And she's had amazing guests on her podcast, including Eddie Vedder of Pearl Jam and Duff McKagan of Guns N' Roses, all talking about mental health struggles. Now, our goal at Hardcore Humanism is to help you discover your life's purpose and work hard to achieve it. This includes identifying the barriers that you may face towards becoming your best, most authentic self. Unfortunately, when someone suffers from mental illness like depression, anxiety, or addiction, they may not have the energy, focus, or concentration to put in the hard work they need to pursue their purpose or feel the satisfaction and fulfillment from their life. And people who live with mental illness often face stigma and blame rather than get the support they need, which is not only stressful, but also may interfere with people seeking care. And that's why Lily's work is so important. Because the more we learn about mental illness, the more we can become empathic to help ourselves and others cope to live the life that we want. So let's hear what Lily has to say. So Lily, welcome to the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No, it's a a real pleasure. And, um, you know, I have been so struck by how you have stepped forward as an advocate for mental health issues. You know, this is something that it's such a big issue for everybody. I think there's more and more awareness of how big of a problem uh, mental illness can be for people. And it's, it's such a big deal when somebody like yourself steps up and tries to do something about it. And what I wanted to start with was, you know, where are you coming from with that? What got you to be interested in that pursuit? Sure, sure. I I do. I really appreciate and enjoy the term mental health advocate. So thank you for saying that. I think it's an important distinction to note. I am by no means a mental health expert. And I think that's kind of where there can be a division and where some of that stigma around mental health can begin is that people feel as though if they don't have a degree in psychology or a degree in whatever, that they're not qualified to talk about it. And I think that's something that, that, um, and that's, and honestly, you know, not to get, I don't want to get into this right away, but, but um, some of the, the pushback that I've received and some of the, the negative comments I've received have been like, what makes you qualified to talk about this? Why are you the one that's talking about this? And I think that's something that, I think that's such an interesting response and, and something that I come at with curiosity because um, that's part of the stigma that I want to shed is that everyone is allowed to talk about mental health. Everyone is allowed to struggle with mental health. Um, and you don't have to have a degree in order to talk about it, you know? Well, I appreciate you not wanting to go at that right at the beginning, but, um, that is, but we can, that, that is, bo- <laughs> that is, that is, that is, that is bother That is bothering me a lot. Um, I get that. It bothers me too, but it's, but I also understand where that's coming from. And it's, it's, it's something that I, I find more curious and interesting and makes me wonder what they've experienced or what they've been told in their life to come at it from that perspective. Well, I, I, I appreciate your sensitivity and your empathy for people who come at you that way. Um, I, I find myself being a little less generous. Um, <laughs> and, and, and let me, let me tell you why I, I can only, I think that the notion that you need to be a quote unquote expert mm-hmm. in mental health in order to have a voice Mm-hmm. And talk about mental health as an important issue is is flat out wrong. I, I, right. I think if I were in a more a more sympathetic frame of mind, I would I would probably say, hey, I understand that, et cetera. But you know, one of the things that that I know when I'm working with someone is mm-hmm. I say, look, I have a certain amount of background on, you know, I have a certain amount of education, I have a certain amount of experience in clinical science, but you know you. And right. this is something we have to work on together. And so it's the same thing when it comes to on a societal level. Like, yes, there are people who are technically they have degrees that, you know, they've, they've worked as therapists like myself, Mm -hmm. but, but I will tell you having done this for as many years as I have, that's how I can tell you that I know that I have a lot to learn. And it's specifically from people who step up who are not necessarily experts who don't think, Oh, we know everything. and, And you have to listen to us. 
that's that's where so much of the action is. So I, I totally. I'm so sorry that you have experienced that because when I saw that you were doing this work, and I'm sure a lot of people who were, you know, I'm sure there's probably more people who felt the way that I did. We we're like, oh my god, this is so great. I appreciate that. I really do appreciate it. And I think, I think for me, I mean, of course it's like frustrating, but um, it's not going to derail me from, I I ended up having one conversation with someone about that, where they're like, what makes you qualified? And I, and all I could say was, what do you want from this conversation? Like, do you want me to stop doing this because you don't like it? Like, do you want me to stop helping the people that it is helping because you take issue with it? Cause that's not gonna happen. So, <laughs> so that's like where I'm kind of, that's the frame of mind I'm coming from, but it also just lets me know that there's so much more work to be done and that there's more stigma to be shed and that more people, you know, should hopefully be enlightened by the fact that like what, what we just said, you don't have to have a degree to talk about this. Um, yeah. And let me, let me, let me take that even a step further. Cause yeah. you know, it, it, whenever there is, is a, a movement and let's, let's, let's talk about, uh, mental health advocacy mm-hmm. treatment as as a movement of sorts about this idea that you know we're 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 shining a light on this this difficult issue and trying to get people the help that they need. Right. There's so many ways of addressing that, and and you need all of it. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't you can't mm-hmm. say like, oh no, it can only come from one place, it can only come from another place. Right. Because again, anybody who's in my field know, you know, knows that we 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 definitely don't know anyone, anyone who's been in this field who doesn't have a healthy humility towards being like, Hey, I'm not sure I know everything. And I, I totally. could be learning from people. You're not paying attention with all due respect. I don't care how good of a therapist you think you are. Mm-hmm. I think I just alienated my whole field there. <laughs> no, but I, I, I totally appreciate that. And that's um, something that's super important for me to hear from somebody that, that is in the field. And also as part of the reason why I focus so much on diversity within the people that I interview in my series is that I, I of course want to center mental health experts or psychologists or whatever, because so much of the time their expertise is extremely inaccessible or very expensive or, you know, whatever it is. And I, and I wanted to put that at the forefront on a very accessible platform so that anyone who wants to access it can, and people who may not otherwise have been able to access it can, um, but also to include you know, people in the music industry, as I'm, as you know, you totally get that and and people in my generation and people of all different creeds and ethnicities and races and genders. And and I think um, that's such an important aspect of mental health that light hasn't necessarily been shed on for a very long time, which is like, there is so much diversity within it and there needs to be a lot more inclusion within it, I think. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I remember when, I mean, this was like 20 years ago, but I was at a conference Mm-hmm. And it was a diversity conference. And I, I got into such trouble because I, it was like, there was like 10 people on the panel and there were eight people in the audience. And it was like, you know, it's about <laughs> diversity is important and all this right. kind of stuff. And I just said, I was like, you know, let's just sort of, sort of like stipulate for a moment that everybody in this room believes in diversity as, as an issue. Right. But I, I just couldn't help but notice that nobody's here. And, and <laughs> you know, like maybe I, and I said this, and I, I don't know what you think, but I, I said to me, I was like, look, we keep pumping out like PhDs and MSWs and PsyDs and all kinds of professionals. And the number of people who actually get treatment is not right. that many. And I was like, right. have, have you ever considered the fact that that's because we're not really paying attention to how to address the issues of diversity? Right. And like, you know, like, like we don't know how to, you know, we like how much time have we spent of people if you're if you're working with someone who's a different race or has a disability or who is you know a different gender, like like what are the things that might block the therapeutic process from being effective? Mm-hmm. And you know, and I was like, maybe we should start telling people that if you don't get it together, like you're not going to have a job because if you don't right. know how to effectively treat people across the spectrum, uh, you know, good luck, like just trying to get a bunch of people who are like you, but. It's right. to me, it's such a, it's such an important issue. I got, I got a lot of, I got a lot <laughs> of flack for that. I thought it was a, like a fairly obvious comment, but you know. Totally. You no. Know. And, and I think that's where the issue of accessibility definitely comes into. And, and especially within marginalized communities and communities of color, there is so little access and there's also, um, you know, from, from what I know, a heightened stigma. Um, and so that's something that, yeah, I, I agree. If, if that diversity is not going to be pursued and, and, actively dismantled like that 
that the fact that it is inaccessible, if that's not going to be actively dismantled, like the field isn't going to go anywhere. Yeah. And I, I had a, I had a professor who said this so well, and, you know, because like back in the day, there was all this stuff, you know, and, and when I came up with like the psychoanalytic approach and, you know, when someone's not showing up for therapy, it's, it's the resistance and they're being mm. defensive. I mean, it's like literally like we had everything geared towards making it out that if we weren't successful, it was the patient's fault and not ours. Mm. It's not, mm-hmm. not a, not a good look, quite frankly, for our field. And, and this professor who I worked with, just said, it's like, you know, if the patient doesn't show up, that's not their responsibility. It's your responsibility to right. figure out a way to get them here. And I right. love that, that flip. And I think it speaks very much to what you're talking about right now. It's our responsibility as a field to get people the care that they need. And that's again, why it is that therefore, if there's anyone who wants to step up and help, we need to listen to them because right. they're right. part of the picture. Right. I appreciate that. I do. All right. I got to calm down now, <laughs> but okay. So getting back to the fundamental issue of, okay, you're stepping out as a mental health advocate. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something that you and I talked about a little bit before the podcast. What are you seeing in your generation as far as the mental health issues that people are struggling with and, and mm-hmm. the causes and, and, you know, what do people in your generation need? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, as we were just talking about the notion of diversity, like I don't want to speak on behalf of an entire generation because I don't know necessarily what people need individually. That's my disclaimer, but I will give you my opinion. Um, (laughs) I, just from what I'm witnessing, obviously, like we're in the middle of one of the craziest weeks in US history and something that I have struggled with anxiety since I was six or seven, like a, like a very notable, like I got diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder when I was like 12. Like it's something that's deeply affected my childhood. And that is something that I've witnessed among most young people I know. And, and in talking to my mom and talking to my grandma, um, you know, they were saying like, even though it is a more open conversation now, and that's why more people are getting diagnosed, it also just wasn't as prevalent. Like, that that sense of anxiety and that sense of dread and that sense of, like, existential fear, you know, is something that that kids didn't necessarily have to struggle with and bargain with in as much in previous generations. Um, and I think... So I think that's something like we've had to kind of grow up very fast and we haven't with the 24 hour news cycle with social media, with the accessibility to constant information. Like, I don't feel like I've had a break the entire time I've been alive, you know, like 9-11 happened a barely more than a year after I was born. Like, I feel like it's, we've all been on this constant alert, like our entire lives. And I think that's kind of where that sense of anxiety may come from. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, it's so, it's so interesting because, you know, when, when we're talking about generalized anxiety for people yeah. who are familiar with it, you know, we're talking about predominantly excessive worry and, right. you know, there can often be physical symptoms that go along with that, like headaches or stomach aches, poor right. sleep. But one of the things that I think is so difficult for people to understand if they don't struggle with anxiety is that it's not just something that you step in and out of. It's mm-hmm. something that causes entirely different encoding of all the information that you're getting, you know? Mm. So in other words, like, like the, the, the context and the meaning of something is very different. So in other words, like if I have worry, which I, I have definitely struggled with in my life and you're asking me to do something that to you might be a, a very, you know, kind and happy gesture, but I've got a bunch of things that I'm concerned about. Mm-hmm. And I'm immediately encoding that as something that's terrifying to me in certain ways. I might not share that with you, mm-hmm. but, and so all of a sudden I'm having a very different relationship with this event right. than, than the other person is. And it's, it's sort of automatic and it's so hard to explain to people how that winds up coloring everything that you do and everything that you are. Totally. I, that, that's such a, that's such a strong analogy and I've never heard it put that way before. And I really appreciate that because it is like, it's, it's like a filter, you know, that's put over your perspective. It's put over your lens. Then unless someone else has like the same or similar filter, they're not going to know what the fuck you're talking about. You know, they're not going to understand why 
Like, and, and that's something I witness honestly a lot in parent child relationships as well. Um, is there kind of being this misunderstanding between like when someone's being a moody teenager or when someone's being a brat or someone's being spoiled, whatever, versus like they're having a panic attack, you know, or they're having anxiety and they're lashing out because irritability is a symptom of anxiety, you know, or like, the, or shutting down or excessive crying or whatever is a symptom of anxiety. Um, so that's, I, I, I really appreciate that, that it does color the way that you perceive everything. And the thing that you're talking about with kids, you know, because, I, you know, part of now, now that I'm a parent and I, mm-hmm. I, I see that, you know, a parent of a teenage daughter and, and a, an mm-hmm. almost teenager, it's like, part of the reason that happens is because there's nothing more upsetting to me than my kids being upset with the exception of my wife being upset, which is more terrifying than it's <laughs> anything. But like, but like when my, when my kids are upset, it completely activates all of the worries that I have. Sure. There's, there's no, sure. you know, and so the, the problem with that interaction, like you're describing is that, you know, that's when I need to be at my most even keeled, but you right. just push the button that is the most panic oriented thing for me. Right. And I see it with myself, like where I, you know, I, you know, like you're talking about before, it's like, I do this for a living and, and, and I right. don't necessarily always think like, Oh, you know, uh, my kid has anxiety the way that I do. I'm just like, you know, huh, what are they doing? You know, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? You know, because I'm, t- because right. I'm terrified that, that, right. that they're in pain. It's not the most effective way of coping, quite frankly, but it's, it's horrible. And I think that you're talking about now how that then becomes even worse because the kid's going to want to just kind of go underground with it. Totally. Totally. And that speaks very directly to my experience, which is what do you do when literally everyone in your family struggles with mental health? <laughs> like, what is there to be done? Because everyone's fucked up somehow. And like, everyone has triggers and everyone has, you know, things are going to set them off. And so it is, it is, that's where I think so, like, destigmatizing an open conversation is so important. Because in my familial situation, like, and I think this is, you know, kind of the case for like society at large as well. But if you don't talk about it, like it's just going to be sheer chaos. Like you have to communicate clearly about what you're experiencing, what you need, what you're going through, or else nothing's going to ever get done because everyone's just going to be freaking out <laughs> all the time. Well, well, yeah. And it's it's so, and what's so difficult about it is that, you know, since anxiety, so let's, let's take anxiety because that's what we're talking about, but it's right. the same for depression. It's the same for other things, Totally. you know, impulsivity, anything. It's like, you know, we, we have a, a higher likelihood of, of genetically passing it to our kids, mm-hmm. but we also, mm-hmm. if we're living with our kids environmentally, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I'm anxious, like I act anxious sometimes, you know, a lot of the times, like, and so you're right. It's, I mean, I'm, I'm going to date myself with this reference, but it's like a, it's like a, a pinball, like when it gets caught in one of those like corners where it's like racking up a lot of points no, and absolutely. you could within, you know, and, and these things are, can be devastating to a family. You know, you can all of a sudden, everybody's going about their day. Someone gets anxious. Another person gets anxious. You're all yelling at each other. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, if, if, if you don't come back to that, oh, it's okay place, which is easy to do. You could really start drifting and, and you just like, look back and you're like, Hey, what happened? Like, right. And what happened is you've been anxious for a while and nobody's talking about it. Right. Yeah. No, that's yeah. <laughs> been there a couple of times. <laughs> So, you know, so, so on that, you know, you're talking about existential angst Mm -hmm. and I, I, I agree. You're, you're not saying you're speaking for your generation. I'm asking you just to make it clear. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) It's, it's, so I guess the question is how does anyone get to any safe place emotionally now? Because I know that as a, as a, you know, someone who's been around a lot longer and in theory would have established my life, you know, I, I feel unsafe right. at this moment in time. So I'm kind of curious, just someone your age, like where, what gives any kind of comfort? It's interesting because I see, I mean, if you've ever been on TikTok, I think that uh, it's a pretty clear indication of the way that our generation uses humor to cope in so many ways because the situation that we're in is so ridiculous that it's like what can you do but 
laugh at it, you know, like it's just, it's so crazy. And, and, but something that I see that goes hand in hand with that is a lot of cynicism, like even, you know, 12, 13 year olds are like, like, Oh my God, like I'm, I'm already done. You know, like I've been, I've been on earth for too long. Like, really, you're going to tell me I have 80 more years of this. Like, what, what am I going to do? Like I have my anxiety so bad. I'm going to have a heart attack by the time I'm 25. And so that's, which is partially like funny. Like we laugh about it. You know what I mean? But it's also like, we're all the way that I perceive it is that we all have to some extent, like we're wired. So I don't even know how to explain it, but I think, yeah, I think coping with humor is definitely one thing, but also there is that sense of cynicism and there is that sense of like jadedness almost. Um, And also kind of this feeling of like the world seems like it could end any day now. So what are we doing? And that's something I especially felt in the pandemic and saw amongst my peers in the pandemic is like, you're actually telling us to do statistics right now. Like you want me to be in class right now. Like you want me to pretend like I care about the Spanish essay when it's like, the entire world is falling apart. Like I can't do this. And I think um, that's another, that's another thing that our, our generation struggles with and is, is coded as depression a lot of the time, because I felt that for myself, absolutely like a lack of motivation because does anything really matter? You know, that kind of existentialist thought process. But, um, but in terms of finding like any semblance of hope or peace right now, I think it, comes down to for me and from what I've witnessed like with my friends is focusing on what you can control and I think that's something that everybody struggles with at some point but um you know kind of coming to terms with the fact like we're here you know and and we're all young so most of us will probably be here for quite a while and what are we going to do to make the most of our time here and that's where I see creativity flourishing a lot um and that's where I see you know artistic expression um, and really important friendships flourishing a lot, um, community and communication and, and creating together, you know, making, I, I had an interview with, with Eddie Vetter on, on Mind Wide Open. And one of the things he says about his choice to create and, and make through song is, is he says, I was making something out of the shit. <laughs> like oh, I had the shit and what was I going to do with it? Like either sit with it and let it kill me, you know, or make something out of it. Um, so that's what I see our generation doing in a pretty beautiful way as well. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because, um, you know, certainly from, from my perspective in, in the context of existential angst, you know, Mm -hmm. purpose driven activity is certainly the most powerful thing you can do, like something that has meaning. And, and it's interesting that you mentioned Eddie Vedder because, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, his contemporaries and the people a few years before him, you know, in, in theory back then there was, there was Reagan and there was, you know, all these things where people were, were very like similarly kind of looking at the, the existential angst mm-hmm. of the country. I, I, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard to know which one was worse. I mean, but it's interesting because so much fantastic art and community came out of that. I mean, that's really where, you know, hardcore and then, grunge and, and these things that, that are, that even today are so powerful in our, in our society. And it's interesting to hear you say, because I always wondered, you know, is there something similarly afoot now where there's this like sort of explosion of, of, of the creative class, if you will, of people mm-hmm. who are turning to that? I, I absolutely believe so. Um, and I was having a conversation with my uncle about this the other day, cause he was like, it's not the same. Like there's no, you know, there's no punk bands. There's no whatever. Like people aren't turning it into creativity, but, but people absolutely are channeling it into creativity. It's just in a different medium because it's a different time, you know, and, and social media seems to be our most predominant um, medium for connection and for creative expression right now. Um, and so that's why I see most of it being channeled uh, is, is through like poetry, you know, on social media or like making videos on social media or, absolutely music. I mean, I, I, my whole circle and, and group of friends is highly musical. So that's where I see it happening the most for us. But, um, yeah, I mean, and like photography and things like that are a big one. Everyone around me is so creative. I can't, I can't help but think that, um, most of our generation is, is attacking it in the same way and coping in the same way. Yeah. It's one of the things that's, that's so, um, I think difficult, at times, you know, your, your uncle bringing up punk because 
Mm-hmm. It's it's very difficult when you like I'll, I'll give you an example like um uh oh god who's I Oh, uh, oh this is perfect actually. Je- Jello Biafra speaking of like mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. punk people. I forgot it was it was him. You know, he was talking about how his father who was actually a psychiatric social worker and was like a huge mental health advocate. Like he actually went around setting up uh mental health uh community centers. Like mm-hmm. we, you know, talk about, talk about like a, a fantastic way to earn a living. And one of the things that, that he was saying was that he was listening, he was reading Freud and like Freud was this radical thing back then. Right. By the time I got to Freud, Freud was the, was the old guard. Like I, I, right. I, re- I rebelled against Freud because I didn't like the idea of, I didn't like the sexism. I didn't totally. like, you know, the, the, the concept that there was this unconscious thing where you could, I didn't like any of it. Yeah. Um, but you know, and someone says something about punk and like, part of the problem is, is that, well, you know, punk opened up the world in so many different ways and is now proliferated in so many different ways that it's hard to conceptualize the idea. Like, well, the, the thing that is now going to be more confrontational, it may not be punk for that very reason. And that's Mm -hmm. scary to people. I know it's scary to me because I like the, I like the art form, you know? Totally. No. And that, and that's something, that's what my uncle was saying was like, no one's pushing back against the system. I was like, uh, <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed, but that's all we're doing. Like as a generation, didn't you see when all the K-pop fans like bought out an entire Trump rally and nobody showed up? Like <laughs> we're we're pushing up, like, we're pushing against the system, but it's just through different means. Um, and so I think that that needs to be taken into account personally. Now, now let me ask you something about that because it's one of the decisions that people have to make is, you know, do you push back? by stepping into it and confronting it or do you step up by to a certain extent uh having like sort of a almost like kind of a a non-confrontational civil disobedience with it like Mm -hmm. when i was talking with um the lead singer of greta van fleet a while back like Mm -hmm. and i was asking him about Mm -hmm. like politics and he said you know excuse me like we don't we don't look at your politics and feel like it's our politics you know, so a lot of people maybe this was a while ago. I don't know if it would still stand for this election, but you know, he was saying that like a lot of people are just like, "Why would I get involved with this? This has nothing to do with me. This is like you know, mm-hmm. like people are like boomer politics." And I'm right. kind of curious from your perspective when you're saying people are doing things. Do you see yeah. people like you're you're you know stepping into it and and sort of taking it on directly? Mm-hmm. But do you see people who are saying like, "Hey, my protest here is being like, I'm not going to have any part of this." Hmm. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. And it might just come down to being involved in different circles and, and living in Seattle. Um, there's a lot happening on the ground and a lot of active involvement, um, especially, you know, in, in recent months with the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, there's a lot of active on foot, like youth marches and youth rallies and youth concerts and and things like that that have been happening. And, and that's kind of what I was raised around. And I think it's interesting that perspective he's coming from, because I definitely felt like that for a time that kind of like, why would I participate in this? If it's, you know, it's not going to serve me and my voice isn't being heard. And um, in recent years have felt more that that's a, a position of privilege to take, you know, because yeah. as, as a, as a, you know, socioeconomically well-off white woman, I could easily say like, Oh, I'm, you know, this, this is, too much or this is I'm not interested like what's the point I'm not going to participate you know but that is such a position of privilege to take because if I chose to do that I wouldn't necessarily be directly affected you know but then what happens to those who are directly affected and need voices who are in positions of privilege and who will be heard by you know society at large um to speak on their behalf and to amplify their voices and that's I think that amplification is something that um that is, can be taken for granted and, and that more people need to be participating in. Yeah. And, and just to clarify, cause you're not saying this, but he, he also wasn't really speaking for himself. He was speaking right. for like, I was, I was pointing to like when people aren't involved, but not, not right. that that's really relevant, but it's, he himself was not, was not saying this is how he approaches it. Totally. But, but, no, one, totally. Of the, but one of the things that, that you're talking about, and this is something, you know, I was I was talking about this with my wife the other day where it was like, it almost seems like, like, well, how involved can you get? Because to a large right. extent, my peace of mind 
is based on focused ignorance. I mean, right. if I really <laughs> sat down and, and was like, look right. at all that's going on, and this gets back to the anxiety thing, it's like, well, right. how, could, how could I become ever? And, right. and I think that a lot of people right now are trying to figure out, it's like, okay, how much do I just, like, like you know, you're saying, because you're doing this, you're saying, it's like, you're, you're, okay, there's me in my life and I'm trying mm-hmm. to take care of that. And then I'm stepping mm-hmm. out of myself a little bit to do something more generally. Right. And how do we, how do we balance that? And I, I guess from, you know, what would you say to people in terms of how to find that balance? Because it, it used to be kind of easier. It was like, oh, I mean, the world was not great back then. It, I think mm-hmm. maybe it was even more ignorance. We just didn't know how many bad things were happening. Totally. Um, and maybe have that do, constant media influx. Right. In and the then so the question, exactly. So it's like, so for you, how do you think about that? Like the taking care of yourself versus, you know, taking care of the world for lack of mm-hmm. better way of saying it. I think, I think something that I witness amongst my generation is a greater sense of radical empathy. And that's something that I haven't, I mean, especially witnessing in this election, like I have not seen as much from older generations across the board. Um, but I think honestly, like for me, it's kind of come down to compartmentalization and that, and, and, and a lot of the time that has kind of a negative connotation, but I think it can be very useful if you're using it in the right way. And I think of it, you know, that metaphor of like, you have to put on your own oxygen mask before you help others, you know, and it's, it's in order to make a difference societally in order to be able to take a stand and, and be able to, you know, have the energy to, you know, be active in social justice or environmental justice or mental health awareness or whatever it may be. Um, you have to be able to stand on your own two feet and you have to take care of yourself. Um, and, and that's, I learned that lesson pretty intensely over the summer uh, because I was a pretty active member of CHOP of the Capitol Hill occupied protest that was going on in Seattle, um, which was incredible and amazing. And I was so honored to be there as an ally and to do whatever I could, but then also being there like 12 hours a day and, and they're kind of being that looming sense of doom and not sure when the Seattle police department was going to come back in, not sure when the national guard was going to come back in. Um, it, it absolutely takes a toll. And if it's taking a toll on me as like a white woman, I can't imagine what kind of toll it's taking on, on, um, people of color and, and black people, especially who, who were being, whose lives were actively being threatened and, and actively being, told that they don't matter as much as white lives, you know? And so I think, I think um, in order to be an effective advocate, a, a very high level of self-care has to be practiced at the same time. Um, so I wish, I wish I had better answers because it seems like everyone is, is constantly, is constantly affected by it because you, we can't get away from it, you no, know, I, because of social media and news, but. Yeah, no, I actually think you're, you're hitting on something that's so important and, and, uh, a friend of mine, DJ Kavum, who's out, uh, who's the founder of Eco Hip Hop out of mm-hmm. out of Colorado, Denver specifically. He he really has has brought my attention to this issue, which is it's really really hard being an advocate. Right. Um, it's and that's something that is I think a lot of people when they start getting into this stuff, they think of it and they think to themselves like this is great because I'm doing right. something I believe in, and it's like right. And, and all of that is true, but I, I really resonate with the oxygen mask thing, which mm-hmm. is that if you're going to get into advocacy, if you're going to get into this kind of political or social movement, you're right. Like you have to start with the recognition that there's just going to be a lot pulling at you. I mean, even think about where we started this conversation, just the fundamental right. notion that there's going to be people who are so critical of you. I remember recently, like I wrote an article just on how all of the language around narcissism as being like evil and horrible mm-hmm. and people talking about the president was a little bit dangerous because, you know, narcissistic personality is a, is a, is a mental health issue. Mm-hmm. And we want people with, you know, who are, who struggle with narcissism to come forward and get care. And right. I got, I got hate mail. I mean, I, I want, really? oh my God, I got people like, I mean, it, you can't scream on an email, but people right. were like, screaming <laughs> in all caps. I was like, I was like, I didn't, I didn't think I said anything other than, you know, just de- destigmatize. But I'm, I'm in a situation where this is just me reading stuff. I'm not, I'm sure. no threat. For the people out there, like you're saying, at these, you know, movements, the, the sense of threat, the sense of, um, uh, of, of risk is so high. I really do think you have to take into account 
your own well-being when you're doing that. Totally. And and Bell Hooks, who's one of the people in the world that like one of the very, very few people that I would probably fangirl over if I ever <laughs> had the opportunity to meet her. But she writes about uh, the idea. I hope I'm quoting this correctly, but of, of healthy narcissism. And I think that's that's like kind of speaks to what you're talking about a little bit um, in that, you know, you, you have to be able to take care of yourself to be effective in in whatever you're doing, but especially when it comes to advocacy and activism. Yeah. And so let's let's take that and pivot for a moment and start talking about the podcast and mm-hmm. how you got that idea going and, you know, what are, what's been great about it, what's been a little more challenging about it, what you've learned, all that kind of stuff. Sure. Um, so I started this podcast slash interview series called Mind Wide Open um, with the intention- great, great name. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, with the intention of destigmatizing mental health and normalizing having open conversations about mental health and, and to the point we were talking about earlier, normalizing anybody having open conversations about mental health um, without feeling like you need to have some sort of, you know, formal education um, to be able to, you know, talk about your own feelings and to talk about how you're feeling. Um, so I came up with that idea in April, around the beginning of quarantine, I had just left college because of COVID, obviously, um, and was definitely feeling a lot of isolation. My depression worsened quite a bit. My anxiety worsened quite a bit. And I think people with those pre-existing issues can relate to that <laughs> in some, I mean, even people who had never struggled with that were having those issues. And, and, um, I have the privilege of having access to so many different mental health experts, whether that's my own therapist, my own psychiatrist, or just people in my life that I know. And a lot of them were saying that what people don't realize is that we are all experiencing a collective trauma. And there are certain things that accompany when you are going through a traumatic experience, whether that's memory loss or, or severe fatigue or, you know, heightened anxiety, heightened depression. And, and those of us who have experience with PTSD and experience with trauma probably can recognize those things, but a lot of people don't. Um, and even people who do have experiences with that don't necessarily have the vocabulary or education to know that that's what they're going through. Um, and that to me just felt like such valuable, valuable, valuable information that I was like, everyone needs to hear this. Like, how do we put this in a form where it's accessible enough that, that people can hear that, understand that, and then be able to get resources for how to cope with that. Um, and that's why I wanted to create, create mind wide open. And, and so it's, it's right now an Instagram TV series, um, where I'm interviewing people and, also, hopefully by the time this airs, will be available as a podcast uh, in the next week or so. And then also like on YouTube with closed captioning and everything. But um, yeah, my keyword is absolutely accessibility. Um, and and in my work in, you know, it's it's a very young, still a very young thing. But in my work as uh, as a mental health advocate, that that notion of accessibility and, and learning how inaccessible mental health care really is, is something that's taken me aback, but also kind of like saddened me and lit a fire under me because it absolutely should not be that way, you know? And, and that's something that I'm, I'm wanting to change. You know, it's, it's interesting. You're talking about that language and it's, it's so important. And this maybe gets a little bit into the comment that your uncle was making, because Mm -hmm. one of the things that when, when people talk about something like punk rock, you know, there's, there's some music that you can listen to and it, it really feels good in, you know, it's like, Hey, this is great music, but it doesn't move you from point A to point B conceptually mm-hmm. in your life. It's not, tr- mm-hmm. it's not transformational. And I right. think that for a lot of people, punk rock was this, this idea of, I didn't really get what I was feeling. I didn't know what this was and I didn't know what to do with it. And now I'm watching you guys do that and, and, and say these words that make sense to me and, and do something and, and, you know, build a community and all this kind of stuff. Now, now I have something to do with all of this. And, and I feel like in the, in that spirit, I mean, I kind of feel like that's what you're doing because when you have a mental health issue, you know, I mean, anxiety, depression, uh, you know, manic episodes, and you don't know what that is, or you don't have a language for that. That sure. is, I mean, you, what do you, what do you even do with that energy? And sure. so just by virtue of the fact that you're stepping in and being like, 
here's something that it is. Here's, here's what this might be. And here's what you could potentially do with that. It's huge because that's, that's transformational in somebody's life. You know, it's not just entertainment, which is wonderful. Entertainment is a wonderful thing. Interesting conversations are a wonderful thing. But mm-hmm. this is what you're doing really has more of that, that, that punk rock, if you will, trend <laughs> vibe. I'm really, I I'm love like, that. I, I think I'm, I think I'm fighting the war. I, I think I'm fighting the conversation that your uncle said originally. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that. And I, and I love the notion that what I'm doing is punk rock. I think that <laughs> that's probably the biggest compliment that I could receive uh, that mind wide open is punk rock. Um, yeah. People want to know where, where's the punk rock <laughs> mind wide open. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, no. And I really appreciate that. And, and for me, uh, I've been in therapy since I was seven and having that vocabulary and learning that languaging around what I'm feeling has been absolutely transformational. Um, and one of the, the guests, my second interview, I believe, uh, is Dr. Mark Brackett from the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. And he's incredible. And he wrote this book called Permission to Feel. Um, and something that he talks about is it is a human right to be able to articulate what you're feeling. Um, and the fact that that is relatively inaccessible and also not necessarily a common thing, you know, whether it's you're, you're in a family situation where it's not comfortable or allowed to talk about your feelings, but also just not having the resources or, or education or knowledge to know um, exactly what it is that you're experiencing is, is something that I, that I want to change because I know the power and I know the, the transformative the transformative capability of being able to name like, okay, this is anxiety or this, what I'm experiencing is a symptom of depression, or this is, you know, this is a form of PTSD. Like that has literally saved my life because it, it, it gives me power and it gives me information to know that I'm not crazy, you know? Yeah. And it gives, it, it gets into that concept of that radical empathy, you know, right. and, and, and feeding back into, you know, there's so many ways of, of addressing this issue because, you know, I mean, look, I'm uh, the, the, the professor that you're talking about, I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's really great stuff. And, um, you know, I remember, you know, Peter Salovey uh, coming, you know, up with emotional intelligence and when I was mm-hmm. coming up in grad school and it was such a big deal. And now it's, it's really, you know, proliferated into this, this, this huge part of society, which is, which is fantastic to see. Right. And, but it still is, you know, when you're talking about, uh, you know, Eddie Vedder. And I, I remember when I interviewed Duff McKagan, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, and you, you interviewed Duff as well. It's like, there is something about different people, somebody like yourself, somebody like Eddie Vedder, somebody like Duff McKagan being the ones to say it's okay to feel. In fact, it's not only right. is it okay, but you have to feel. Right. And that's different than coming from someone who is a quote unquote expert or, you know, comes from a scientific background because you know, one of the things they teach you in therapy is you always go where the affect is, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? You always go where the emotion is and that's where the change is going to happen. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, by having some of these people on, you know, that's, what's going to activate, you know, people are going to listen to Eddie better, Mm -hmm. you know, if he says something like that, whereas, you know, they may not listen to somebody who, you know, has been doing research on that topic. And that's, you know, that's unfortunately just the way it is, you know? Right. And I, and I think to that end, it, it, uh, it may not have the same effect because obviously a mental health expert uh, or a psychologist will know what they're talking about, to, but to be able to hear it directly from someone that you really admire and especially, you know, people like Duff and Ed that, that make art that people connect with on a super deep level because of what they've experienced with their mental health or their emotion to be able to hear that person say, like, I have struggled with the same things you struggle with, you know, I, I think that's huge. And that's where I wanted to have that diversity and duality within my series is to be able to have mental health experts speak to that end and to give their expertise, but then also to have public figures and, and, um, and just regular people, you know, talk, talking about mental health. I think that's so important. And, and whatever backlash I've gotten about that has only made me want to do that more because it makes me recognize the importance of, of, allowing that to be an open conversation. So you're doing this, this wonderful advocacy work and you're doing this podcast. You know, one of the things that people might want to know about has, has, have those conversations in any way influenced how you've thought about any of your own struggles or, you know, how you take care of yourself? The series for me has been as much about helping 
okay, this is going to sound super selfish, but bear with me. It has been as much about helping and healing myself as it has been about helping and healing others. <laughs> and I say that just because it, and, and almost in a very unexpected way, uh, I say that because I've gotten so much out of every interview that I've done um, that has totally changed my perspective. I've gotten so much out of every interview I've done that at, by this point, it's it's changed my perspective on a lot of different mental health topics. And what, I mean, as I said earlier, I've struggled with anxiety my whole life and, and more with depression as I got into my teenage years. Um, and then when I was 15, I lost one of my best friends to suicide and then my dad to suicide a year later and his best friend, one of his best friends, um, a couple months after that. So after that whole ordeal, suicidal ideation and, and um, PTSD were things that I, I struggled with a lot as well. Um, which are obviously very directly mental health struggles and issues. Um, but in doing this series, I have learned, I've learned a ton about the science behind mental health, which has been super helpful to me uh, and super eye-opening to me. And has, there's a, there's a lot of comfort in that in knowing that like there is a, there is a psychological physiological explanation for what you're going through. And, and um, that knowledge feels super powerful to me. Uh, to be able to kind of like use logic to see like, okay, you're not going crazy. It's physically impossible for this feeling to last forever, you know, and, and science knows what's going on with you. You know, like you're not some crazy, like I think people who struggle with anxiety, especially will know what I'm talking about when you're like, I am some crazy anomaly and like I'm going insane and something is horribly wrong to be able to look at that scientific data and say like, okay, you're actually fine, you know, but this is, this is the, these are the brain chemical imbalances that are making you feel this way that's super powerful. Um, but then, yeah, to just, to, to be able to talk to such a wide array of people, um, that struggle with their own mental health is just deeply comforting, I think. Uh, and, and to hear it from people, um, who I really admire and, and even, and people like, like Ed and, and Duff that I grew up with that I haven't necessarily always had been able to have these kinds of conversations with, like, I haven't, I haven't known the ins and outs of their mental health journeys. So it's been a really cool way to open up conversations um, with people that I haven't necessarily delved into that yet with. And, and amongst my friends too, one of the, one of the surprise things that came out of me doing this podcast is after I put out my first episode, I was not expecting this at all. I had like 20 friends text me and be like, holy shit. Like I did not know that this was something you'd struggled with or that this happened or whatever. And, and, I want to talk about it more. Like I want to talk about mental health more. I want to share more about my mental health with you. Um, and that's been such a blessing and something that's strengthened so many of my relationships. So that's definitely given me a lot of insight into how much stronger um, and and more impactful your communities and your relationships can become when you are um, radically empathetic and radically vulnerable with the people around you. I think that's huge. You know, one one thing that that some people might be wondering, just listening to that, is that you, you talked about worry at the beginning and generalized anxiety, and then the shift to to trauma and depression. And if you're comfortable just talking about what that feels like, because a lot of people really, quite frankly, don't know what any of those things feel like. Mm-hmm. And so again, that shift from that more generalized anxiety to that more focused um, that, that more focused again, that's those traumatic reactions and those depressive reactions. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's interesting. I've never, I've never heard it articulated that way. And I've never thought about it that way that it went from like a generalized to a more focused, uh, cause I guess when, when I was in it, it didn't necessarily feel that way. Like, especially when experiencing generalized anxiety, like I'm anxious all the time, but it's also finding little things to glom onto and be anxious about all the time. So it just, it felt like there had always been a focus, but that focus just like shifted. (laughs) Um, If that makes any sense. But I think something that was really interesting in, uh, in learning about and experiencing PTSD is that a lot of the symptoms and things that come with PTSD feel a lot like anxiety, but extremely, extremely heightened. And so for a while I was, I was, um, in and out of different therapies. I started doing um, dialectical behavioral therapy and exploring different methods because I was under the impression that my anxiety had just gotten so insanely bad that I was like not really able to function. You know, I I was pretty down and out. Um, 
and couldn't do a lot of the things that I'd been able to do. When I finally had my therapist say, like, I, I, what you're experiencing is, is PTSD. And then looking at all of the, um, the symptoms that come with that and the side effects that come from that, it, as I was saying before, it was, it was soothing and comforting in a way to know, excuse me, to know that I'm not crazy high necessarily on the anxiety spectrum, but like a very normal person who has experienced trauma. <laughs> like if that makes any sense and not just say that one's normal or one's whatever, but tr- I was treating it as something that it wasn't in that. That's why I wasn't seeing necessarily improvement in that area. No. And, and, you know, obviously we, we just met during this podcast. So I'm, I'm, I'm obviously very sorry that you, you went through those experiences because anytime you lose people who are close to you, that's, um, it's so horrible. And it, it is interesting how one would ever think that that wouldn't be traumatizing. You know, mm-hmm. the idea that, mm-hmm. that experiencing trauma from something like that would be abnormal in some ways. And I'm, I'm glad that, that, you know, you had people who were saying to you, Hey, this is, you just went through something like you went through mm-hmm. something traumatic. You're having a reaction that is commensurate with what you just went through. Um, as opposed to like, Hey, what's going on here? We don't understand, you know, which mm-hmm. is, is horrible, you know, to, to put that on, to superimpose that on top of the already difficult experience that someone's facing. Yeah. And that's something when, when I lost my close friend, I was 15 and then um, I was 16 when my dad passed. And I think there's so much to be said about going through things like that at such a pivotal age. Um, because six months after my dad died, I was trying to take the SAT, you know, <laughs> and like filling out college applications and like, gra- I had a 4.0 all through high school. And when I tell you I barely graduated, I mean, like I barely graduated. Um, so it's just, it's just fucking crazy. And I, and I think that's kind of something that a lot of people are experiencing now. A lot of people in the younger generation are experiencing, especially amidst the pandemic, but, but also just with all the crazy shit that goes on in the world is like trying to find what we were talking about before, trying to find a motivation and find comfort and some semblance of peace within, um, you know, and be able to do the things that you need to do and, and, and get done while you're also trying to grapple with whatever it is you're grappling with. But that's part of the reason why I feel so strongly about mental health and why I want to be a mental health advocate is, is that I think these things, you know, mental health and, and emotional intelligence, literacy and education should be in every school, you know, and should be something that's, that's taught to families so that parents know how to talk about it with their kids um, and should be something that's implemented in every workplace, you know, and in every corporate setting. And uh, it's something that has to happen on an individual level in your own inner circles, but also something that needs to happen systemically. Yeah. And it's it, one of the things that, that, you know, getting back to this radical empathy idea is that, you know, people think that if you're empathic, that that means that someone's going to then fall apart. It's like, if you say, right. like, oh, how are you feeling? That right. all of a sudden, the, literally, the person's going to become a puddle in front of you. And you know what? That that might be true for a little bit, but the, the puddle's going to reform, and it's right. going to reform a lot better. <laughs> I, I don't really right. know if I'm, I'm digging the puddle metaphor. I wish I could. <laughs> but but, you know, this, this idea of, you know, I think that a lot of people from my generation are like, oh, you know, everything's about feelings and, you know, all this kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, because, because we saw, I know I saw with my parents' generation and in my generation, because you see what happens when feelings get avoided, when feelings right. get suppressed. It's right. not pretty. And, that, you know, and I want to pivot to kind of what you're looking to for the future. But, but that, what I think you just said is at least from my perspective is part of what I, it sounds like your mission statement is, is that, sure. you know, you will know when you are quote unquote there, when radical empathy is the norm, yeah. you know, and that's when, you know, we'll just be dealing with the fact that people are dealing with issues, not dealing with issues and covering them up right. and making them worse. Right. Or don't have, don't have safe spaces to be vulnerable. Um, I think that's a huge one as well. Yeah. So, I mean, looking, looking ahead, other than, you know, bringing radical empathy to the world. What, mm-hmm. what are you hoping for? <laughs> just that, just that <laughs> just, little thing. Yeah, just other than that. I mean, like what's, <laughs> what's plan B in, in, in terms of, you know, your goals with this and, and, you know, sure. the podcast and beyond. 
Sure. Um, I mean, the amazing thing about the the podcast or the series uh, has been that I went into it with no expectation. You know, I went into it with the idea that if I can help five people feel seen and, and validated in some way in their own mental health journey, like that will be enough for me. Uh, so the response has been absolutely overwhelming in a beautiful way, you know, that uh, and also just gives an indication to me how starved people are for these conversations, you know, that this is something that needed to happen a long time ago and something that absolutely needs to be amplified going forward. So, yeah, I'm I, honestly, I'm just excited. I'm excited to see what comes of it. I have some really exciting guests lined up uh, for the next couple months and and going to go into 2021 with you know with the series kind of in full force and and we'll see what comes of it but i just think opening those conversations is is kind of the first step to everything um and that's something that that i'm witnessing a lot this week you know with with the election going on obviously is the one of the i mean there's many differences between the candidates but <laughs> one of the main differences that i've witnessed is is biden's empathy and like all these videos that you see of him like there's one I saw recently of him speaking to Parkland survivors, um, you know, and and him, his willingness to talk openly about grief in losing his son and his wife and his daughter. Like, that's something that I was like, thank God, like the world needs that right now to have somebody be able to speak openly about those experiences in a way that is vulnerable without feeling without being shameful about it, you know. And so that's that's I, I find hope in that. I find hope when when people that are in political office or celebrities or anybody in the public eye demonstrates that, you know, like to to talk about your experiences with grief, with trauma, with mental health, with emotions of any kind in an open and vulnerable way um, is so powerful and, and so hopeful to me. Um, so I just I hope to see those conversations continuing to be had. I think it's something that you can make happen in your in your own life to an extent, but I hope it continues to happen systemically as well. Well, listen, I'm one of those five people that you've helped so far. So, you know, <laughs> and honestly, this is this is really is really impressive stuff. Um, you Thank know, you. I'm very, very psyched that you're taking this on. Um, I'm glad you came on to our podcast to talk about it. And honestly, I wish you wish you all the best and hope that as you're on this journey, uh, you'll come back in and talk because it's it's really been great talking with you. I feel really motivated that this direction that you're talking about is the right way. And I hope other people kind of get animated and say, hey, I want to do something in this space. Totally. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And, um, you know, and see and seeing you doing the same thing. And I and I think that intersection between uh, music, music and mental health is such an important one. And one that's very near and dear to my heart, obviously. So um, I like, I like that as well. <laughs> All right. We'll talk soon. Perfect. Right, Bye-bye. So there you have it. Mental health advocate, Lily Cornell Silver, talking about her podcast, Mind Wide Open, and how she's tackling the very tough issue of how we understand and destigmatize mental illness. Now, when it comes to addressing a difficult problem like mental illness, we all have an important role to play to raise awareness, learn how to cope, and provide others with the support they need. And Lily is really taking a leadership role here. She's still in college, and she's already stepping up and creating a public platform for people to learn about this difficult issue. And speaking of difficult issues, it was kind of tough for me to contain my frustration that there was anyone suggesting to her that she was not qualified to talk about mental illness because she's not a so-called expert. But this is a good opportunity to practice what I preach and be understanding rather than judgmental. Yes, there are people like myself who have had training and therefore have a certain expertise with the clinical science of mental illness. But one of the things I always tell my patients is that we work as a team. I know the clinical science, I have a certain amount of experience treating people, and you know you. And we in the mental health field need more people like Lily stepping up and sharing their story. This is not only so that we can learn ourselves, but also so more people can see that many of us struggle with mental health issues. And this type of advocacy goes a long way towards challenging the stigma of mental illness. So one small step that we can take is just to go online and listen to Lily's podcast or other outlets to hear from people who have struggled with mental illness so we can learn about these difficult issues. 
And so that way, whether we ourselves face mental illness or have someone close to us struggling with mental health issues, we can be supportive and understanding rather than judgmental and stigmatizing. I want to thank my wife and Hardcore Humanism co-founder, Island Booman, for producing this podcast, and my brothers in Odd Zero for letting us use Odd Zero music. If you like what you hear in the podcast, subscribe on your favorite app, give us a rating, and write a review. And if you'd like to take the next step and make change in your life, check out the Hardcore Humanism Therapy and Coaching Program at HardcoreHumanism.com. So get at it, Hardcore Humans. See you next time.